Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As we planned out this series, I ended up with a short little parable. Just eight tiny verses. I ended up with Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Some of you may know it already. It's the parable of the unjust judge. It's a parable to tell us why we should always pray. We should keep on praying and never give up in prayer, even when it seems like God is not listening. Before we read the text and then begin to study the text, I just want to talk to you about your prayer life. Now, you don't need to raise your hand on any of these, but just simply raise your hand in your heart if I ask you these questions. How would you describe your prayer life? Would you use the term maybe infrequent? I have yet to run into a person who tells me, well, I just pray too much. You have to help me stop. I think all of us can say our prayer life is probably infrequent or certainly less than we'd like it to be. How about easily distracted? How does it work for you when you go to pray? I I know how it is for me. I I start to pray and instantly I begin thinking of all the things I need to do. In fact, I have a task list I keep over here next to my prayer list so I can keep writing them down because for some reason they only come to my mind when I start to pray. Anybody ever else have that problem? Oh, yeah, I think we're all there. Well, how about this? How many of you feel like your prayer life is unimportant? Now, notice I didn't say that you felt like prayer is unimportant. We've been around the Bible long enough to know that prayer is important. But how many of you feel like your particular prayer life is unimportant or ineffective? Because you've prayed about some things for a long time. You've cried on your knees over some things for a long time. But nothing has ever changed. It doesn't seem like God hears. It doesn't seem like God cares or God will respond. So deep, deep in your heart, you're wondering if your prayer life is really that important after all because it doesn't seem to make a difference. If that's you, if you've ever experienced that feeling, you've asked that question, you've come on the right morning because this little parable is going to tell us why it's always super important to keep praying, keep praying, and never give This parable is found in Luke chapter 18. So I'd like to ask you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 18. If you're using the Pew Bibles, I think on most of the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 877. So I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read these simple eight verses together of Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, 
In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Usually we would start with the first verse and then just work our way through. But today I want to do something a little different. I'd like to actually begin with the last verse. In fact, the last few words of the last worth, last verse. Because if you noticed, it sort of sounds odd, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like it actually fits with the parable. It sort of feels disjointed, tacked on at the end. It reads this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why is there that strange ending? Well, here's the reason. That ending feels strange because it actually connects with something that was going earlier on back in chapter 17. If you study this, there's actually one unit of thought, one topic that begins in chapter 17, verse 20, and goes all the way down to chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus told this parable in response to what was happening in chapter 17. Now, the chapter marker, unfortunately, comes right smack in the middle. So it sort of gives us this arbitrary dividing line, which should not be there. You need to understand that the chapters were added to our Bible in the 1300s by copyists, simply trying to help people find a way to better index their Bible so they could find things. Those chapter markers are not inspired by God. They're just added later. And personally, I think that's a really bad point to divide the chapter because he divides those two pieces of thought. So if we're going to understand why Jesus told this parable, And what is the meaning of this parable? It's only fair that we actually start back in chapter 17 and see what he was talking about and why he told it in the first place. So we're going to need a little bit of a running start, sort of an on-ramp to this parable. And then this final verse will finally make good sense. So let's go ahead and begin in chapter 17, verse 20. Follow along in your notes. The point of this latter half of chapter 17 is to be ready for the return of Christ. Beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
the Pharisees are asking Jesus when the kingdom of God will come. When will God break in and, and set up his kingdom? When will he overthrow the Romans and finally put us in power? It's sort of like a, a, an election in America. You know, a different party in, in control, but in a much more radical way. And Jesus takes it in a direction they never expected. He said, the kingdom of God, if you think it's just about some kind of supernatural thing coming to overthrow the Romans, you've missed it. The kingdom of God is happening here and now in the midst of you. Some translations say within you, but the better translation would be in the midst of you. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is expanding and growing right in front of them. Because when people see their sin and they're convicted of their sin and they repent of their sin and they trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them their sin, the Bible says that they are supernaturally born again in that moment. They are literally made into a completely new creation. And they are joined into the ever-expanding kingdom of God across different nationalities, across different races, across different ethnic groups. Because right now, the kingdom of God is not growing in a geographical sense. It's not growing in a political sense. It's growing in our hearts as people are being grafted in to the kingdom by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and being born again. But then Jesus continues and he guards against the other extreme, which is thinking that the kingdom of God will always be growing in a quiet, subtle, behind-the-scenes kind of way. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Right now, the kingdom of God is growing in the hearts and lives of people. Uh, amazingly, making them born again, but it's sort of subtly. But there is coming a day and time when the Son of Man will return and set up his kingdom. And when he does, it'll be anything but subtle. It'll be anything but behind the scenes. It won't be like, oh, look, go there. Jesus is here and he's setting up his kingdom over in Los Angeles to help the homeless. You have to go travel and see him. No, it'll be like lightning, he says, that flashes across the entire sky and illuminates everyone at once. That's what it will be like when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. It'll not be a private thing. It'll be a very public thing. And as Jesus continues, he describes what it'll be like leading up to that day when Christ returns. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, 
buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus gives two Old Testament examples to tell us that what it will be like on the day of, that the Son of Man returns, up to that day and including that day, it will start off like business as usual. It will be like in the days of Noah. And Noah and the, the animals went in the ark. No one in the ark. And God closed the door on the ark. And what was everybody doing at that time? Eating, drinking, shopping on Amazon, playing soccer, going out to breakfast, just business as usual. And then it started to rain. And they had no idea that everything was about to be destroyed. It would be like in the destruction of Sodom in the days of Lot. Lot and his wife were sprinting, running as fast as they could to get out of the city. And people were in the city eating and drinking. Kids were going to school and people were starting their day at work. And like, Why is Lot running so fast? wonder what's going on. They had no idea that fire and sulfur were about ready to rain down from heaven upon them and they would be completely and totally destroyed. Jesus says that's what it's going to be like on the day when the Son of Man returns. It'll be an ordinary day, a normal day, business as usual day when Christ returns and it'll be suddenly and unexpectedly this is why in the free church statement of faith, one of the things we say is Christ's return is imminent. And that means it could happen at any time. So every day we want to live as if it could be our last day. And Christ could return on that day. We want to live every single day without regrets. Because Jesus says, on the day he returns, it will be just like another ordinary day. And he can return at any time. Now, as Jesus continues, he talks about how we can be prepared for that day. How we can be ready for that day, which will come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly. On that day, when the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come, let the, not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He says, when Christ does return on that day, do not be found to be like Lot's wife. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you know about Lot's wife. Lot and his wife were running from Sodom, 
as it was going to be destroyed and fire was raining down from heaven. But she kept stopping and she stopped and she looked back and she, she stared at it and it didn't go well for her, did it? She was turned into a pillar of salt. Here's why. Because Lot's wife was more interested in the things of this world that she was losing than the salvation of God she was gaining. Lot's wife was found to be more interested in the things of the world she was losing than the salvation of God she was gaining. Jesus says, on that day when Christ returns, let it not be that we are found to be like Lot's wife. More interested in the things of this world that we will be losing rather than the salvation of God we will be gaining. Because if we are more interested in the things of this world we are losing than in being with Christ, we will not be fit for His kingdom on that day. That is what He is saying here. And he says, you know what it's going to be like on that day? There'll be two people in bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There'll be two people working together on an assembly line, talking together. One will be taken and the other will be left. Ultimately, what what is the big difference between those who will be taken to be with Christ and those who are left behind? Really, it boils down to one question. Do you love Jesus more than the things of this world? Or do you love the things of this world more than you love Jesus? Eternity hangs in the balance on that question. Now, what about those who are left behind? Jesus says sort of this enigmatic phrase, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And those who are left behind, he describes it Well, like a corpse. Certainly not a good thing. It's a time of destruction. And I'm not going to dig into that too much. We did spend uh, about a month this summer talking about hell. And one of those messages was on the day of Christ's return and what judgment day will be like for those who die apart from Christ. You know, I'll just let you refer to that message. But when Jesus says, there the corpses, where the corpses, the vultures will gather, it'll obviously not be good to be left behind. So, what is going on here is this is talking about, in chapter 17, the day of Christ's return. And how we can be ready for the day of Christ's return. How over the time while we wait for Christ's return, we don't fall out of love with Christ and fall more in love with the things of this world. Because if that happens over time, we will not be fit for Christ when he comes and returns and inaugurates his kingdom. Now, knowing that is the background leading into this short parable, All of a sudden, the last verse makes so much better sense, doesn't it? Let's read it again. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are still looking for him, waiting for him, and trusting him? This parable, it tells us how can we 
how we cannot be found to be like Lot's wife on the day of Christ's return. What do we need to do to keep our love for Christ hot and not let our love for the things of this world over time slowly overwhelm our love for Christ? Here's the answer of this parable. Pray. Pray. Keep on praying. Even when it seems like Jesus is not listening, even when it seems like God doesn't care, keep on praying. Never give up on praying. It's what will keep the love for Christ in your heart hot. Now, let's get into this parable and see what else it teaches us about that prayer time. Verses 1 through 8. Keep on praying. It says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. This is one of the few parables where it tell, Jesus tells us the very purpose of the parable here in the front of the parable before we even read the parable. Keep on praying. Don't lose heart in your praying. Don't give up on your praying. That's the purpose of the parable. Now let's read the parable itself. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, this is just a story. It's a, it's a fictional story, but it's based on what is factual reality in the world of Jesus at that time. That is, in every town, there was a judge and a court. We can tell by the context of this, this is not a religious court that is being talked about. This is not a high court that is being talked about. This is a local civil court. This is what I call a small claims court. It's Judge Judy court. Anybody know what Judge Judy is? If you don't know Judge Judy, go to YouTube this afternoon and look her up. This is what it is. It's a Judge Judy court. It's a small claims court. And the judge in this court, he's a real stinker. He's terrible. He doesn't fear God or he doesn't respect man. He's a cold-hearted snake is what this guy is. Let me explain what it means to not fear God. As a judge, he should know, as a judge in Israel, that he is ultimately responsible to the ultimate judge of the universe for how he renders his judgments. One day he will give an answer to God for how he has judged others. This guy... He doesn't even care. He's easy to bribe. He's easy to manipulate. Doesn't care what God thinks. I mean, you could give this guy a gift card for lunch before the, before the uh, court convenes, and he'll rule in your favor just to get a free lunch out of the whole thing. That's how corrupt this guy is. Now, he should have known what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, which describes the way that judges at that time were to rule and were to live. It says this in 2 Chronicles 19. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and he said to the judges, 
Consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking of bribes. This guy has totally forgotten this, that he's supposed to judge like God will judge in complete and total fairness and with no favoritism. Not only is he a judge who doesn't fear God, but he's also a judge who is no respecter of man, which means he doesn't care about people. His job is supposed to be there to help people, to use the law to protect people, to help people who are being taken advantage of by others. So the law and the judge would be there to implement it to protect people who are going through hard times. He doesn't care about that whatsoever. All he thinks about is himself. The other character in our story is the widow. She's a woman. Now what you need to know at this point is the historical background because courts in this day were not a place where women would normally go. If a woman had a complaint, she went with her husband who carried the complaint forward. This woman is a widow. She doesn't have a husband to stand up for her. And even in this day, if you don't have a husband, your father would stand up for you. Your brothers would stand up for you. This woman has none of that. No husband, no father, no brothers. She is completely and totally alone in this world. She is vulnerable. She has no leverage, no power, which is why it seems like people have taken advantage of her because she has no way of getting things right. The other thing we learn from the context is about her complaint. And that is she has a, a just complaint. You notice that she doesn't say here, please rule in my favor. She says, give me the justice I deserve. In other words, there's really no question about what is right and what is wrong. It's just a matter of the judge needing to actually carry it out and do it. But he's not doing that. He's blowing her off. He's throwing her to the side because she's not that important to him. Biblically, by the way, he has a particular responsibility to this woman in this position. Look what it says in Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And what? Plead the widow's cause. So she has God's word in her favor. She has justice in her favor, but she doesn't have the judge in her favor. He's not doing anything whatsoever to help her. Day after day, she comes to him. Day after day, she, he brushes her off to the side. But what this judge did not count on was the persistence of this woman. Every day without fail, she came. Every day without fail, she said, please give me justice against my adversary. Finally, she was such a pain in the neck, he said, I'll give her the justice she deserves, lest she beat me down with her consistent coming. There's some interesting Greek in this. Beat me down is a Greek boxing term. It means to give me a black eye. 
this weak and vulnerable woman was punching this powerful judge out by her persistence. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, I've got it. Now I know. What I need to do is I need to pray more often. I need to pray more frequently. If I could just pray morning and I could just pray noon and I could just pray evening about the same things, then I would get answers. Then I would get a response from God. That's not what this parable is saying at all. Folks, this is not a parable of similarity. This is a parable of contrast. Our God is not like the unjust judge. The unjust judge doesn't care about justice. Our God very much cares about justice. The unjust judge doesn't care about people, especially weak and vulnerable people. Our God cares about you and me. He loves you more than you could ever get your mind wrapped around. Our God loves us so much that He sent His own Son to die in our place for our sin, to die the most hideous death known to man and to take all of our sin and put it on Him. So we could be free of our sin. And so we could be his adopted brothers and sisters. That is how much God loves us. Our God is not like an unjust judge who doesn't care. He is a just judge who very much cares. Now, to prove to you that this parable is a parable of contrast, not similarity... Let's continue what it says in Luke. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And then here's where it flips. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus describes you and me as God's elect. It's a loaded term. That means even before the creation of the world, God had planned you, God has chosen you, and God has planned to adopt you as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, that we would be, for all of eternity, the most blessed beings in the entire universe. My friends, that is our identity. That is why when we pray, we know God does hear our prayers. He does listen to our prayers. And he is responding to our prayers speedily. He is not like an unjust judge who doesn't care. Look what it says in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, this raises the million dollar question, doesn't it? If this parable tells us that God passionately loves us, that he will respond to our requests speedily and quickly, why does it feel like God is an unjust judge so many times? Why do we pray long and hard and it feels so many times like God is not listening and God is not responding? I'm going to give you three answers to that question. And here they are. Number one, God is responding to our prayers, but he's responding in the wisdom of his timing, not necessarily in our timing. God is responding to our prayers, but he's responding in the wisdom of his timing, not necessarily in our timing. How many of you have had a time of adversity and difficulty come into your life and you immediately get down on your knees, oh Jesus, take it away. I don't like it. It hurts. And he doesn't seem to take it away. But maybe months on down the road, he does solve the issue. Why did he let it last for a period of time? Well, in God's wisdom, perhaps he was using that period of adversity to mature our character to teach us humility, to make us more like Jesus. So if that time of adversity was removed from us, the very moment we wanted it gone, all the good things that God was doing in our life through it would be denied. So God answers our prayers in the wisdom of his timing, not necessarily in the short-sightedness of our timing. In addition, How many of you have ever been in a position where you lost a job and you got down on your knees and you prayed, God, please come to the rescue. Please open the doors. Please provide the right place for me to go. And it seemed like months. And then you finally land the job and you get there. And you realize that two months before you came, when you started praying, God was actually moving. He started moving people around in the corporation to which you would go. Moving one person here, another person there. Slowly over time, leaving open the very job that he had planned for you. So two months after you started praying, God had finally lined up the answer to your prayer and he moved you in in just the right timing and just the right way. See, God does love us. He answers our prayers, but in the wisdom of his timing, not in the short-sightedness of our timing. I'll give you another thing you need to know. God answers our prayers in such a way that will allow us to bring him more glory. He answers our prayers in such a way that will allow us to bring him more glory. Folks, oftentimes we think that what the best thing that can happen to our life is that we would be richer, fatter, and happier. Isn't that true? God, answer my prayer. Make me richer, fatter, and happier. But folks, at the end of the day, that's not really what we want out of life. The purpose of our life is that we would bring glory to God. Bringing glory to God doesn't always mean life is going to get easier. But at the end of the day, when we stand before him, would we rather say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for answering my prayer because I'm 
fatter and happier, or thank you, Jesus, for answering my prayer in such a way that I could actually bring more glory to you than I ever realized or was ever praying for. See, God is good. He answers our prayers in such a way that would allow us to give him more glory because he loves us and he plans what's best for us. Number three, God answers our prayers in a way that does us the most good. He answers our prayers in a way that does us the most good. Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. But here's where we mess it up. We think good means ease, comfort, and happiness. That's not necessarily what good is. What is good is that over time, we would become more like Jesus, our elder brother. God answers our prayers in such a way that we are forming the character of Christ into our lives. Did Christ go through adversity? Did Christ go through difficulty? Did God the Father answer his prayer and carry him through? Yes. If Christ went through adversity and it was good and it brought more glory to the Father, trust that God will answer our prayer to make us more like Christ and to bring us more like the Father. So, when we go to times in prayer, and it feels like God is an unjust judge. He doesn't care. Feels like he doesn't listen. Feels like he's distant. We know that's just not true. God loves us. He loves us so much he gave his own son for us. He loves us so much that we are the elect, the most blessed beings in the universe. And he speedily will answer our prayers. But according to the wisdom of his timing, and in such a way that God will get more glory for our lives and in such a way that will do us the most good so we become more like Jesus over time. He answers our prayers in ways that are better than we could have ever asked. Now, if you look here, I have in the back the application for you. And here it is. God's heart towards us is not like the unjust judge. He loves us. We must remember that. A, he loves us so much he gave his son to take away our sins and bring us to heaven. He loves us so much we're the most blessed beings in the universe and God will always respond to our prayers in a way that is best for his glory according to the wisdom of his time and with what is best for our spiritual good. Also, prayer is essential for us to stay in love with Christ and not let the ordinary life cause us to fall more, more in love with the things of this world than Jesus. Folks, if we give up on prayer because we feel like God will not respond or he's not listening, on the day of Christ's return, we will be found to be like Lot's wife and unfit for the kingdom. Just prayer, constant prayer over everything is what keeps our love for Christ warm in our hearts and doesn't let it grow cold. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we want to confess that many times we have been discouraged in prayer. We've wondered if you were listening, 
We wonder why you're not responding speedily and quickly and in such a way that we see fit and right. We want to just confess this morning that when we don't see answers to our prayer, we must look to the character of our God. That we can trust the fact that you love us. Trust the fact that Jesus died for us and that you will respond with great wisdom in your timing, with glory to you, and also in a way that is for our good. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.